Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. For those of you who are in the chat room, um, please give me a heads up immediately as far as my sound quality. This is the second attempt I am making at doing this particular show. Uh, we're going to be reading from the live interview. I'm sorry, reading from the text-based interview. Uh, that I had with Mr. Scott Noble, the filmmaker of Cywar. Yes, unfortunately, uh, he does not do um, radio or television interviews at this time, apparently so that he can keep his privacy respected. When you uh, hear some of the background that he has, in particular with uh, things that have happened in his family in regards to the CIA, you'll, you'll probably understand why he might be a bit on the paranoid side. Um, okay, a couple of uh, things that I wanted to talk about. Uh, first of which, before we get started, um, is I want to extremely thank all the people who came to my rescue this month uh, in regards to my financial situation that is still a total mess, but at least now I will be able to float Love by. Radio. Um, that was strange. Anyway, hold on a second. <laughs> oh, I see what happened. Anyway, I apologize for this. I just had to take a moment. What happened is, is I had the window open at the same time. There we go. Cut that off. Anyway, um, so as I was saying, uh, thank you to everybody who uh, backed me up and essentially saved my life here this month, thanks to the financial crap going on at home. And... um, what I, uh, after talking to some people, what was suggested to me, was, meaning some of the listeners, was the notion that um, it's possible that now my chat's acting up. There we go. Okay. Um, some people in the past have suggested subscriptions to V Radio. I have by no means ever intend to make a subscription mandatory to listen to any of my content. However, um, it did occur to me that in order to be able to maintain what's going on around here easily and be able to put on a hell of a lot more shows, um, all it would really require, because my the listener base is about somewhere between 800 to 1,500 people every show as far as downloads. Um, live shows usually have somewhere between 50 to 100 to 200, depending on the show and the guest. So essentially, um, what I was thinking was this. If even half of the regular listeners, like every month, donated $1.50 to a chip-in, I would be set. There, there wouldn't, it, didn't need to, it doesn't need to be any more than that. Um, because that's one of the other things that bothers me is like, when I get these donations together, there are some people who give very generously, um, and I, I really, really appreciate it, but it makes me feel like, you know, it's kind of unfair. Um, so once again, I'm not charging for V-Radio, but um, if you guys, you know, this, most people have told me that they feel that this is reasonable, and once again, this is suggested by listeners of V-Radio. Um, if everybody could donate $1.50 to the chip-in that I put up every month, then not only do I promise to give up a hell of a lot more shows than I have been, but that'll be able to keep everything floating. And $1.50 a month for usually 8 to 12 hours of radio is actually a pretty good deal, especially when I get some of these guests. And I do put a lot of work into the research, particularly when I'm writing my own blogs and doing my own uh, research stuff that I'm putting together. That can take 
hours and hours and hours of my time. So um, that being the case, particularly if anybody who's listening to the show now wants to comment on that idea in the rail in the chat room, have at it. Um, in other news, uh, the Venus Project has given me permission to write books, as I'm sure you all know, um, for the purpose of essentially I'm going to be allowed to sell these books when the time comes anyway. I have to get them finished first. Um, that will be a way that you can support the show. Uh, I originally had done a contest to decide what my logo was going to look like, and I've decided instead, um, the guy's permission from the Venus Project, that I'm going to be using an adaption of their logo, the new logo that they're coming out with. Um, you guys should be seeing that soon. Um, I want to thank everybody who participated in that uh, contest that went on a long time ago, um, and I will be finding a way to say thank you individually to each of them. Um, my original intent was possibly to send each one of them one of the T-shirts that I'm going to be having made. Um, so T-shirts for V-Radio will be available. Some of the other stuff, uh, like you know, that you can get through some of these sites, will also be available. Um, depends on the demand. And the reason that I'm doing this has more to do with the fact that I, you know, uh, something that a, I, ironically, one of my libertarian radio host friends pointed out was that, you know, donations is great when you can do it, but you know, it kind of actually makes you feel a little better when you're giving them a product in exchange for their support. So. Um, and no, I won't have to pay guests to come on. Respond to Savage Truth in the chat room. Um, anyway, so these are some of the thoughts that I have. If any of you guys have any problem with that, or more specifically, also, if you support this idea, uh, please do me a favor and uh, send me an email. Uh, this is another thing I actually wanted to tell you guys, as far as my Facebook is concerned. Sending me messages on the VTV Facebook is going to really delay any answer you're going to get. The reason being is the VTV Facebook is, I mean, the VTV Radio Facebook is full of all kinds of groups that are spamming me constantly. If you want to get a hold of me, the best way is still VTV at v-radio.org. Um, so, and uh, once again, we have Vasper85 wants a shout out from Vancouver. I still plan to visit Canada one of these days. Hope to hopefully go up there when you know one of these times you guys are having an event or something. I haven't been to Canada yet. It's ironic. I've been to Ireland, but I haven't been to Canada. <laughs> so anyway, um, and as far as the books are concerned, there's a couple of different topics I'm going to be covering, but uh, the one that I'm actually working on right now is the comic book adaption to uh, Doug Millette's Awakening film. Um, this will not just be a direct translation. Uh, I will be adding in some of my own material, which I already have. Like I expanded on the issue of the media a little bit in a way that made Doug laugh pretty loud. Um, so if, if you get this book, it's not just going to be the movie in written format. Um, and it is my hope that it will become also a good tool to help spread awareness of the movement and its principles. So... Um, you're asking, oh, okay. The, the issue, uh, somebody in the chat room is asking about the situation with Jock in Canada. Uh, the situation is, uh, Jock, just like anybody else, uh, constantly changing his sleep schedule to accommodate different countries that he was in on the tour. Uh, the weather changes constantly would actually make anybody sick. I'm kind of surprised that uh, they kept that on as long as they have, considering Roxanne is in her 50s and Jock is 94. 
Um, he's not in any mortal danger or anything, uh, but he does have a cold, and he needed to go home to, uh, you know, to Venus where he could be in warm weather and get some rest. So don't worry. There won't be any problems. Their plan is hopefully, in the event that the Canadians can help them reorganize something, to go back to Canada as soon as Jock feels better. Um, let's see, Awakening comic book. Oh, and um, this is kind of on a side note. Um, just kind of taking a personal privilege here. I'm also working on a fiction comic book. Um, that's going to be, it's, there's going to be some Venus Project stuff that I'm going to put in there, but it's going to kind of be snuck in, so to speak, in a way that uh, addresses the ideas to the reader without them really thinking about it. Um, this way I can actually spread the message out to a wider audience. Um, it's kind of like the movie V for Vendetta or The Matrix or even the first three Star Wars films that they just put out recently, uh, meaning obviously not first in production but first in the storyline, was that it's kind of a subtle way to send your message to people without uh, them feeling like they're watching a documentary. And that's how I plan to do that in my um, fiction comic book. It's going to be called Chronicles of the Knights Templar. Uh, some of the conspiracy theory stuff that, you know, people just, you know, think is conspiracy theory I'm going to include in my fiction. Um, and no, the, the Knights Templar are not anything like what people are suggesting, uh, even historically. That it's that aspect of what the Knights Templar will be in this story is completely fictional. It's not based at all on reality, at least uh, not past like their ancient history. So anyway, that aside, when that comes out, I will let everybody know. Um, I haven't. We're going to be pitching it to major publications, and if that gets accepted, then you guys will be able to get it through whoever publishes it. If it takes forever for it to get published, then my plan is to go ahead and self-publish it. There's a lot of great self-publishing services out there. It'll be downloadable in PDFs, uh, which is actually very common for web comics, uh, and you'll be able to get printed versions. So, in any case, um, those are the basic things that I wanted to cover. Now we're going to talk about the interview uh, in regards to Cywar. You can find Cywar by going to uh, my website, vradio.org. That's v-radio.org. So v-radio.org. Um, and if you go to the must-see TV tab, uh, it's on the last page currently. I believe it's page 11 in the movies. And... Uh, what you're going to find there is a link to, or actually there's an embedded version there that you can full screen for Cywar. Uh, Cywar, and there's also a link also to this man's website. Apparently Cywar is going to be one of uh, many films that this gentleman, Scott Noble, will be doing in regards to the subject of propaganda and mind control through uh, advertising. I also recently added um, another film that is not by Scott Noble, but is on the similar subject to the must-see TV tab. Um, it is called Consuming Kids. I've been waiting for a means by which to let people watch that movie for free on the Internet. Consuming Kids is another must-see TV for sure. Uh, if you're a parent um, or even if you just want to learn how you were targeted with mind control tactics, and I'm not saying that to be sensationalist, once you watch Consuming Kids, you will find that it was, in fact, mind control tactics that are used on children to get them to become consumers it'll really open your mind, um, more specifically open your eyes to just how dangerous advertising really is and how far, how far it has gone beyond just the idea of telling people about products. Uh, one of the things they were doing was literally they would do studies where they would uh, 
computer analyze the eye movements of children when watching commercials to get an idea for what colors to use, what sounds to use, everything. And, and once you've gotten to that point, you've, in my opinion anyway, you've definitely gone beyond any kind of just advertising to make your product look good. You're trying to get inside the brain of the person in question. So um, Cywar talks about a lot of that stuff too. And I would say um, if, if you, you've heard me beat you guys to death about uh, the century of self, um, both Cymore and Consuming Kids are kind of condensed versions of some of the things that are in Century of Self, but they're also, uh, they have also independent information that has nothing to do with Century of Self. So for that reason, um, you're going to want to try to uh, check out both of these films for sure. I'm going to try to get the people who made Consuming Kids on my radio show at some point. Um, Ah, yes, and as somebody pointed out in the chat room, um, the film Cywar exposes how the founding fathers of the United States government were not some sort of empirical gods and exposes the true nature of the foundation of this country. Um, many of you have heard me talk about this because Senator Mike Gravel, uh, one of my political mentors, uh, kind of was one of the first people to uh, bring me into thinking about that because I had just come fresh out of the Ron Paul Revolution. And in the Ron Paul Revolution, you venerate the founding fathers. And it was Mike Gravel who studied direct democracy, uh, and that's why he ended up studying why we don't have direct democracy systems anymore in the United States, uh, that studied about the, the actual true nature of the Founding Fathers and what kind of people they really were. Um, and that the reason we don't have direct democracy anymore is because of the issue of slavery. I've kind of belabored that to death in different previous shows, so I won't make you suffer through it now. But... Um, you might want to check out the book uh, Mike Gravel put out called Citizen Power, um, as he has a piece of legislation called the National Initiative for Democracy that he would like to see introduced uh, to once again bring back the ability of the people to vote majority on laws in the United States government. So that being said, um, I think it's about time we got started here. Uh, in the event that there is time left, I have the show set up for an hour. I may actually have to extend it. Um, I don't know how long it's going to take to read this. You know, I may take callers or whatever and open the air. So I'm glad that the sound is working better this time. And uh, I suppose it's also better that I restarted this segment because I really was not in a very <laughs> good mood uh, when I got on the air last time. Uh, Spiral into nothing. You've read Citizen Power? Just responding once again to the chat room. Um, I'm going to continue talking while I wait for him. Uh, but, yeah, you can find Citizen Power. I've linked it on you know, previous shows of mine. I believe it's at citizen-power.us. I could be wrong. It's been a while since I've looked into that. I've got several copies of the book myself because Mike Gravel gave them to me. <sighs> okay. Oh, good. Well, it's good to hear somebody else read that. Um, Citizen Power also is one of the books that brought me into the idea that there was a prison industrial complex and a medical industrial complex, and that it goes far beyond just the issues of the military. These corporations collude to make themselves really powerful in every major industry. So that being said, um, we're going to move on. I'm going to read from this. Uh, there will be a written form of this. There's actually a written form of this on my blog right now. And this article will also be included in the upcoming Zeitgeist newsletter. So um, I'm hoping to also be able to talk to him, uh, Mr. Noble, in the future uh, in regards to his upcoming movies. So I'm going to go ahead and start reading from here. Now, this is basically set up in the same way that it's going to be for the newsletter. So I will basically be telling you when I'm asking questions, and I will 
tell you when he is answering. That'll sound a little bit awkward, but it, that's the only way I could get this interview on B-Radio. So, B-Radio set out to get an interview with Scott Noble, the filmmaker of the film Cywar. Cywar is an excellent film about the power of propaganda, public relations, and advertising to influence and therefore control mankind. You can see, if you view this film at no cost by visiting bradio.org and going to the Must See TV tab, on the last page you will find a link to this film. I strongly urge you to check it out. Our translations team is currently working on translating this film into other languages for Mr. Noble, meaning the Zeitgeist Movement translation team. Mr. Noble said he is not taking video or radio interviews at this time. However, he did agree to take some time for a text-based interview that I decided to share with you here. I asked him, please introduce yourself to the readers. He says, sure. I'm a writer, filmmaker, and wage slave currently living in Vancouver, on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. My first film, Cywar, The Real Battlefield is the Mind, was recently released online. It explores the evolution of propaganda and public relations in the United States. So then I asked him, can you describe for the readers what was the precipice, the moment that got you, quote, out of the box? What got you out of the mainstream dream and instead peering behind the curtain? Mr. Noble said, I'm not sure I can pinpoint one moment in time, but I do remember being deeply disturbed by the revelation that my aunt had been used as a human guinea pig in one of the CIA's Cold War mind control experiments, specifically experiments conducted at the Allen Memorial Institute in Montreal. The Allen Memorial was then regarded as the preeminent psychiatric institution in Canada, so my grandparents decided to send my aunt there, as a teenager at the time, to help her deal with certain emotional problems. She was only 16. From what I gather, her problems amounted to typical adolescent behavior, typical in our society at least, depression, delinquency, acting out, and so forth. Unbeknownst to my grandparents, the center's director, Dr. Ewan Cameron, was being paid by the CIA to conduct mind control experiments. He would later become president of the World Psychiatric Association. Techniques included massive doses of electric shock, massive doses of barbiturates, prolonged sensory deprivation, and other tortures. Indeed, one of the CIA's torture manuals, Kubark, refers explicitly to Cameron's experiments, among with earlier studies in fear-based conditioning by behaviorists like Hobart Mower. Now, I'm going to pause in the reading here, just so you guys know. Um, this is not some crazy conspiracy theory. They actually did specials about this stuff on the um, History Channel. A lot of this stuff has actually been um, declassified. This is also similar to the experiments that were done with LSD uh, that... Um, they would, you know, basically, they had done experience with LSD with the hopes that it could become a good mind control drug. So it's one of the reasons why when people say it frees your mind, I, I kind of hesitate. But essentially, they were experimenting with psychotropic drugs and their effects uh, with the hopes that they could use them to control the mind. And uh, that fellow, his name escapes me at the moment. Um, oh, yes, Timothy Leary uh, was involved with that experiment, actually. Um, it's one of the other reasons why when people idolize him, I kind of chuckle, but I digress. Uh, Kubark describes a process of, we're back to reading, of regression where subjects can be reduced to an infantile state. I explore these issues in my next documentary, Human Resources, which was recently completed and will be online in a month or two. Perhaps owing to her young age at the time, my aunt was never able to recover from the trauma of her experience at the Allen Memorial. She took her own life. 
Then I asked, in regards to your aunt, how did you find out about what had happened to her? And then he says, it was bitterly ironic, in fact, that she emerged from the Allen Memorial. She was a basket case and diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. This was interpreted at the time by doctors, friends, loved ones, as a worsening of her symptoms. She cried out that she had been locked in the basement of the center for months at a time and viciously abused by other methods. An absurd idea, it seemed. It was only many years later when, she, uh, when the story broke, we realized she was referring to sensory deprivation experiments. She refused to participate in the lawsuit against the Canadian government and the CIA due to fears that it was a sinister plot. A few victims, such as Linda McDonald, received a pittance, about a hundred grand. Revealing that she had indeed become a paranoid schizophrenic, at least according to the typical diagnostic measures, the question is whether same would have happened if she hadn't suffered through the therapy of the CIA. I guess if you've been tortured for months on end, sinister plots where the government is out to get you don't seem so irrational. In any case, I never met her in person. When we visited her house, we were never allowed inside. I was a kid at the time. We all regarded her as a sort of crazy aunt in the attic. I have dedicated my second film, Human Resources, to my aunt, whose name was Nancy Noble. And I asked him, what motivated you to make Cywar? Mr. Noble said, it was an unusual process in that I planned for a documentary series from the outset, five or six films. So I didn't have a clear idea what subjects I would tackle first. I conducted about 30 interviews with various intellectuals, activists, former spooks, whistleblowers, etc., and decided to start with propaganda. Obviously, no one film can properly address such a vast subject. So I decided to design Cywar both as an introduction to the current state of psychological warfare and a sort of history lesson about the origins and development of PR and propaganda in the United States. Future entries will explore the Cold War period and its bastard child, the War on Terror. The History Channel is replete with documentaries about the propaganda techniques employed by the Third Reich and the Soviet Union against its citizens, but when it comes to propaganda techniques employed by the American government against theirs, information we could also use, we are left with very little to go on, at least in the mainstream media. Part of this owes to the historical relationship between propaganda and journalism in the United States. The mainstream media has worked hand in glove with both the state and powerful corporations since the beginnings of the American propaganda industry. During World War II, figures like Edward Bernays, Walter Lippmann, Ivy Lee, the founding fathers of modern journalism and PR, all of them cut their teeth, foisting pro-war propaganda on the American people. They worked for the Creel Committee and nascent intelligence agencies such as the Inquiry, which had three main goals, to demonize the enemy, in this case the Germans, to demonize dissidents in the homeland, and to convince the American public that it was their destiny to make world safe for democracy. We all know how well that turned out. A disturbingly similar pattern emerges after World War II. Fresh from the OWI, Office of War Information, you have the publishers of Time, Look and Fortune, the editors of Holiday, Coronet, Parade, and the Saturday Review, the heads of Viking Press, Harper and Brothers, Stratus and Young, the board chairman of CBS, the editor of Reader's Digest, and so on. For more on this, I highly recommend Christopher Simpson's book, The Science of Coercion. I think Peter Joseph recommended that film, a book, too. Anyway, 
The virtual uniformity of intellectual and mainstream opinion during the Cold War should come as no surprise. It wasn't just a question of shared class interests, though that was probably the most important factor. There was also this deeply incestuous relationship between the American state and its bargaining intelligence agencies, the mainstream media, elite-funded think tanks, and the corporations and banks which would seem to control all of the above. By the time the War on Terror rolled around, you had a tiny handful of giant media conglomerates in nearly complete command of the flow of information. The Internet is throwing a considerable amount of sand in the gears. God willing, the machine will grind to a halt in the near future. I think a lot of activists tend to assume that most of this stuff is common knowledge. In broad strokes, perhaps it is. Yet a close friend with whom I discussed these sorts of issues on a fairly frequent basis was unaware of many of the incidents I cover in Cywar. For example, that the Jessica Lynch story and the toppling of the Saddam statue were staged by TPTs, or tactical PSYOP teams, that CNN used military psy warriors during its coverage of the assault on Serbia, that PR hacks now outnumber journalists, that journalists themselves spend most of their time regurgitating PR. There's an ironic coincidence relating to the film itself. Literally two weeks after I first uploaded it to the Internet and sent it around various journalists, the DoD announced that it was dropping the term PSYOPs from its lexicon. From henceforth, they declared psychological operations would be known as Military Information Support Operations, or MISO. doesn't have quite the same ring to it, but of course that's the point. The Department of Defense used to be called the Department of War. Another little side note here. Um, Senator Mike Gravel's book, The Kingmakers, which if you look back at some of my really old B radio shows I actually read from that book, also covered the issue that, um, about Saddam Hussein, the statue, um, things like and the Jessica Lynch issue, and how they were basically just kind of propaganda to try to get us all behind the war and think everything was going well over there. Anyway, so my next question was, are you familiar with the BBC documentary The Century of Self? Did it influence your making of Cywar? Mr. Noble says, it did, but not in the manner you might expect. Curtis is an extremely talented filmmaker with an immense repository of archival footage at his disposal, some of which I utilized in Cywar. And he puts out a great product. But I also find that he tends to exaggerate the importance of particular individuals, groups and fanciful ideas in lieu of basic class analysis. He also appears to self-censor often at critical junctures. I don't recall seeing the slightest hint of skepticism about the official story of 9-11 in The Power of Nightmares. There was a great review of the Century, Self, Century of Self published by Media Lens. In it, the author quotes a passage from the film, quote, politicians and planners came to believe that Freud was right to suggest that hidden deep within the human beings uh, between, um, I'm sorry, within all human beings were dangerous and irrational desires and fears. They were convinced that it was the unleashing of these instincts that had led to the barbarism of Nazi Germany. To stop it ever happening again, they set out to find ways to control the hidden enemy within the human mind. The Century of Self, The Engineering of Consent, BBC Two, March 24, 2002. The critic goes on to state, quote, As you'll know, if you've read Elizabeth Fone Wolf's study at that, of the period, Alex Carey's work, and countless books by Edward Herman, Noam Chomsky, and many others. This could not be further from the truth. Post-1945, as now the real fear of politicians and planners was the existence of dangerous, rational desires and fears, popular desires for equity, justice, and functioning democracy, 
popular fears that unbridled capitalism and militarism would once again lead to horrors on the scale of the two world wars. Freud's theories were incidental, useful in refining traditional methods of popular control, perhaps, but a sideshow. In Curtis's film, Bernays is presented more as a cause than an effect. In reality, he was joined by all sorts of other like-minded mind managers from the time period. Scientists like John B. Watson, the founder of behaviorism, for example, and Ivy Lee, the unsung hero of embedded journalism, crisis management, and the press release. Public relations evolved as a means of rescuing corporations from the wrath of public opinion, most notably in response to events like the Ludlow Massacre. The revolution in American advertising was brought about not by a single visionary, but a crisis in capitalism, namely overproduction, which mandated new and innovative ways of marketing products. There were alternatives, raising wages and reducing working hours, for example, but corporations were at a mandated law to, by, mandated by law to maximize profits on behalf of their shareholders. The consumer society is a natural outgrowth of capitalism, not Freud. Endless growth means endless amounts of junk. To sell it, you have to convince people that buying objects leads to happiness. My next question was, what inspired you to include such a lengthy section on the American Constitution? Mr. Noble said, People like Walter Lippmann and Edward Bernays are great exemplars of what Peter Bacharach called the theory of democratic elitism, but they didn't create this philosophy. They merely updated it to correspond with new developments in technology and communication. You can go back Mosca or Schumpeter um, or a whole slew of other anti-democratic philosophers from Machiavelli to Plato, but crucially for our discussion, the founding fathers of the United States itself. There is very little difference between Littman's suggestion that the people are a bewildered herd which must be put in place, and John Jay's remark that the people who own the country ought to govern it, or Alexander Hamilton's quip that the people are a great beast needing to be tamed, or Madison's insistence that a primary function of government is to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. The overriding theme is that real democracy might produce leveling tendencies. In other words, an egalitarian society in which regular people might actually be able to participate in the running of their government, or lack thereof, depending on how, on how anarchistic your tendencies. What has emerged as the primary form of governance around the globe is what social scientists describe as polyarchy. There's a fancy definition for it, but the basic gist is that we get to vote every few years to elect some rich guy, write letters to our representatives, and if we're really uppity, attend a demonstration, but by no means should we ever be permitted to actually make decisions collectively on matters of any import. Important decisions are the purview of the enlightened ones, people like Henry Kissinger, Dick Cheney, Alan Greenspan, or if you like, the founding fathers and their responsible set of men, the wealthy. I have received some criticism that the section on the constitution of the American power structure is a departure from the other content. In my view, it is impossible to understand modern propaganda without understanding the theory of democratic elitism. Indeed, the idea that modern governments, whether labeled republic or parliamentary democracy, are, are or were in any way democratic is perhaps the greatest psyop of them all. These structures are based on the premise that the powers can be, a balance, or can be balanced by each other, a concept which should, at this point, be recognized as a monumental failure. 
The majority recognized it as a con at the time of the Constitutional Convention, and indeed the Anti-Federalists predicted quite accurately what would occur as a result. There is a good deal of myth-making associated with colonial America. We are invited to imagine the Holocene days in which some sort of free market existed alongside limited government. Granted, it is an acknowledgment there were minor problems in the form of slavery, the oppression of women, and the genocide of Native Americans. But by and large, you had something approaching a legitimate meritocracy, an honest-to-goodness bootstrap society. The reality was quite different. As Norman Livergood explains, in colonial America, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting much poorer. In 1687 in Boston, the top 1% owned about 25% of the wealth. By 1770, the top 1% owned 44% of the wealth. In those same years, the poor, those who owned no property, represented 14%. In 1687, and 29% in 1770. So you had a system of rapidly increasing inequality and class conflict, culminating in the Shays Rebellion and the Debtor Riot and the other Debtor Riots, which necessitated a strong federal government to crush the nascent spirit of democracy flowering amongst the American people. In some ways, it should not be surprising to many Americans or that many Americans regard the word democracy with contempt. The absurdist PR spectacles known as elections, in which issues like gay marriage can actually sway the balance of power, deserve nothing but disdain. But we would do well to remember that the Soviet Union also called itself a democracy. There are alternatives, touched upon in the film, that do not necessitate each um, either tyranny or the minority, I'm sorry, of the minority or tyranny of the majority, but which rely on concepts like decentralization, anti-hierarchy, consensus decision-making, and the modes of social organization. For those who would simultaneously worship the Founding Fathers and turn property into an idol, I recommend the words of Benjamin Franklin. Under presence of governing, Europeans have divided their nations into two classes, wolves and sheep. Whereas amongst the Native Americans, all property, indeed except the savage's temporary cabin, his bow, his match coat, and other little acquisitions absolutely necessary for his subsistence, seems to me to be the creature of public convention. Hence the public has the rights of regulating dissent and all other conveyance of property, and even of limiting the quantity and uses of it. All the property that is necessary to a man is his natural right, which none may justly deprive him of, but all property superfluous to such purposes is the property of the public, who by their laws have created it and who may, by other laws, dispose of it. Um, it says, you can see his article on dissident voice, Ayn Rand in Uganda, for more right-wing, uh, more on right-wing libertarianism. I actually read this article. Um, I'll give the link in the chat room but um, it was really well done. And it, the funny thing is, is that it's, he exposes a lot of the same things about Ayn Rand that I did. Actually, my uh, document just mis uh, misbehaved. I can get you guys that link later, though. Now, um, but yeah, if you go to Dissident Voice and search Ayn Rand in Uganda, you should be able to find it as well. I also gave it on my blog when I reposted this. And I also gave links to um, my own blog on the subject of Ayn Rand. Now, the next question I asked was, what kind of reactions have you had with regard to the film? Any memorable, memorable feedback, good or bad? 
Mr. Ovel said, overall, the response has been very positive. Numerous professors from numerous countries have requested hard copies for use in Vernon's university courses, ranging from communications to sociology to Native American studies. The film is currently being translated in a number of languages, including Spanish, French, and Arabic. In terms of viewership, Cywar achieved viral status in its first week, receiving 83,000 views in six days. Unfortunately, its momentum was such when Exposure Room, the hosting site, removed it for reasons that were not clearly explained. I'm guessing bandwidth costs was the culprit. I have since re-uploaded the film to other websites. The only significant negative feedback I've received so far has had to do with the medium itself. It is argued that Cywar, a film about propaganda, is itself propagandistic. It contains moving music, slick editing, and provocative imagery. I suppose it depends on how we define propaganda. If we use the simplest definition, information that is spread for the purpose of promoting some cause, then Cywar is indeed propagandistic. In Brave New World Revisited, Aldous Huxley wrote that, quote, mass communication, in a word, is neither good nor bad. It is simply a force, and like any other force, it can be used either well or ill. Used in one way, the press, the radio, and the end of cinema are indispensable to the survival of democracy. Used in another way, they are among the most powerful weapons in the dictator's armory. End quote. To me, the word propaganda contains a sinister connotation, the intent to deceive. Since I didn't set out to deceive anyone with my film, I don't consider it an example of propaganda. Agonist prop might be a better description, referring here to the politicized artwork that flourished in the first half of the 20th century. It would do well to consider the idea that most insidious forms of propaganda do not come in the form of plain, uh, plainly stated thesis or obvious political viewpoints, but in the art of pseudo-objectivity. I am far less offended by the ridiculous bombast of Fox News that many a BBC or PBS documentary films which pretend to examine issues in an objective, detached, rational manner, but employ subtle propaganda techniques to mislead viewers, mislead viewers. Censorship by omission is the most widely used device. The use of audiovisual techniques in Cywar that might be interpreted as manipulative are, to me, simply an expression of my own creativity. No more propagandist, uh, pr propagandistic than a clever turn of phrase in an essay, and no less necessary. Especially to today's audience, it is difficult to maintain a viewer's interest in what Bo Filter describes as our post-literate society, and I make no apologies for attempting to move and entertain in addition to educate. I'm no more interested in making a boring documentary than watching one. It's basically the same reasoning that uh, Peter Joseph uses. Moving on to the next question. Now that Cywar has been out for a while, is there anything you wish you had put in the film that you missed or anything you put into it you wish you had not? Mr. Rubble said, I had originally intended to cover the entire Cold War period in the film, but I soon realized that would be impossible. Instead, I would be examining the Cold War in my third film, Counterintelligence, which I began work on last week. Of particular interest to me in this respect is the rise of black propaganda, the term is used to describe a variety of contexts, often benign, but a lesser-known definition comes from a declassified document obtained through the Freedom of Information Act and published in Chris Simpson's seminal work on the subject, The Science of Coercion. Here, black propaganda includes clandestine warfare, subversion, sabotage, and miscellaneous operations such as assassination. Later, counterinsurgency manuals explicitly refer to false flag operations 
such as occurred under Operations Ajax and Gladio. False flags are acts of terrorism and other forms of violence carried out by hidden actors, which are then blamed on a designated enemy. Planted evidence and patsies are usually involved. Many scholars argue quite plausibly that the war on terror amounts to Gladio Redo, with Muslims replacing communists. Black propaganda remains the biggest taboo in journalism. There was an interesting sort of unspoken debate that occurred between Walter Lippmann and Harold Loswell in the aftermath of World War I. Lippmann advocated the manufacture of consent, which he regarded as a more, a more humane and effective means of managing public consciousness than brute force basically saying it's better to brainwash us than to get out guns and force us to do things. This is why I said um, in my earlier shows that the fascism that arises out of a free market capitalist system is more insidious than the fascism that arises out of a socialist or communist system because you don't see it. They just buy your consent. I'm going to go back to reading. Loswell, on the other hand, recommended a blending of the old and the new. Media control would be paramount but selected acts of covert violence would also be necessary. It is Boswell's vision that ultimately won the day. One, of the, uh, one other regret about Cywar. I have a great clip of Christopher Simpson discussing the etymology of the word communication. I was intending to include it in the film, but simply forgot about it until it was too late. The Latin roots of the word suggest the sharing of duties or sharing of burdens. So we have terms like commune or communion or community and so forth words that describe who we are and how we survive as a species. Somewhere along the line, meaning of communication, the meaning of communication changed. It was no longer about sharing of ideas, but about their transmission by a select group of elites to the mass of the population. In other words, propaganda. So the relationship was altered from one of equality to one of hierarchy. The people on the receiving end are rendered fundamentally passive in this relationship. They are not participants, but spectators. The same analogy can be drawn to the entire edifice of modern government. We are not allowed to participate in any meaningful way, but we can watch television to our heart's content. When I made Cywar, and when I imagine people watching it, the hope is that I am not merely transmitting a message, but that the viewers will become participants by engaging with the ideas, debating them with others, and hopefully taking some sort of action in response, even if it's just sending the link around. There's a certain beauty to the blog and to the Internet forum. It doesn't matter if you're a VIP or a janitor. You have equal space to express your opinions. It's almost like the old town meetings in colonial America prior to the Constitutional Convention, where slave owners and land speculators lamented the fact that the lowliest craftsmen were allowed to participate in debate and policy formulation. If we are ever to end the madness, we will have to recapture that spirit of real participatory democracy and put it into practice in mass. So that was the end of the blog. Um, if anybody wanted to call in, now would be the time. We've got 16 minutes left in the scheduled show. Uh, the number to call is 347-945-7747. That's 347-945-7747. 7747. Um, well, as far as commentary, for those of you who haven't watched Cywar yet, I strongly recommend that you check out that film. Um, it seems as though the chat room went to sleep. You guys still out there listening? Um, 
In any case, I will be watching the switchboard if anybody wants to call in. If you would prefer to be added via Skype, you can send me a PM on my Skype. My Skype is VTV115. So anyway, um, I want to thank everybody again for tuning in to V Radio, and I want to thank everybody again for the support that you've given me so far. Uh, as I was explaining earlier, um, I'm going to set up a chip-in widget like the one that I did this time, every time, and just ask that everybody try to give a suggested donation of $1.50 a month. If you can do that, then I'll be able to continue to do what I'm doing at the rate that I'm doing it and hopefully not lose my home. Um, that's basically the situation here in Michigan with the ridiculously bad uh, um, ridiculously bad financial circumstances that have come up. So, well, somebody just added me. Uh, ask this person if they wanted to come on. Did you want to come on the show now? <laughs> ask him. Anyway, um, he's typing in return. Let's see what he says. You guys are always such chickens. <laughs> Like I, I got you guys a uh, at one point anyway a toll free number for V Radio and nobody ever used it. So well, D Kill is still at the keyboard. That's good. <laughs> in any case, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Um, was was I able to read that in such a way that it was still you know they didn't put you to sleep or anything? I know it's tough sometimes when you're reading it. I did my best to try to put on my uh, TV announcer voice. But um, go ahead and respond to that in the chat room since you're all chickens and don't call in. And uh, thanks again for tuning in, everybody. Um, make sure you check out my website, vradio.org, v-radio.org. And um, since nobody's calling in or responding in the chat room, I'm going to go ahead and end this segment. I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, and once again, you can find the written version of that uh, interview at my blog, and it will also be in the um, upcoming Zeitgeist newsletter. So thanks again for tuning in, everybody. I'm going to leave you with some words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.